0: Good morning. I am delighted to be back with you this morning. I'm going to start by telling you the stories of a couple of men born in 1910. These stories are told by one of my favorite podcasters and author and many other things James Bryan Smith and this is from his book The Good and Beautiful Life. So long ago when Jim was Uh, doing a chaplaincy internship at a senior community, he met a man named Ben Jacobs. Ben had requested a visit from the chaplain and when Jim's supervisor gave him the slip with the request, she said, good luck with this one. So he walks into the room, this older man, 75 years old, sitting in a chair, very dapper looking and yet very stern looking. And Jim walked to him, shake, shake his hand, and he didn't take his hand, and they just started talking about philosophy and world religions and all that. And after about half an hour, the guy said, well, you're busy, so why, you know, go ahead and do what you need to do. And Jim said, well, okay, and he got up and offered his hand again. The man shook his hand this time, and he said, could you come back tomorrow? And so Jim went back the next day, and then for the next six, And they talked every day about these deep things. It was obviously, this man was very bright and he thought Jim was very bright, but Jim still couldn't figure out why he wanted him to come. But each day, Ben revealed a little bit more about himself to Jim. And then finally on the seventh day, Jim realized that Ben had called him to confess. So he started by telling him that in 1935, at 25 years old, he had made his first million. 20 years later, when he was 45, he was the richest man in his state. And so he had amassed all this wealth and power, friends of high people. He lied, cheated, stole. He was all out for himself. He had multiple affairs, multiple wives, a daughter that was 40, and she would no longer talk to him. And after he confessed, he stopped to look at Jim to see what Jim was doing, whether or not he was judging him. So I'll pick up here with what Jim says. Um, Ben paused to look at me to see if I was judging him. I wasn't. I was somewhat stunned. He looked so grandfatherly in his cardigan sweater. He looked nothing like the kind of person who could have lived such an ambitious, selfish, even sinful life. Ben went on, I suppose you could say that I ruined my life because today I have nothing really. Oh, I still have a lot of money. I still have more money than I could ever spend. But that brings me no joy. I sit here each day waiting to die. I have nothing but bad memories. I cared about no one in my life, and no one cares about me. You, young man, are all I have. In 2006, Jim had the opportunity to go with his then 14-year-old son, Jacob, to meet the greatest coach of all time, John Wooden of UCLA. They spent three hours together, and uh, at one point Jim asked him, John, what was your secret? What's your secret? And these are the words that uh, Jim recorded. Jim, I made up my mind in 1935, the year that Ben had made his first million, to live by a set of principles, and I never wavered from them. They are based on the Bible and the teachings of Jesus. Principles like courage and honesty and hard work, character and loyalty and virtue and honor. These are what constitute a good life." And then Jim kind of describes, describes him. John has lived an amazing life. He says he Uh, His love for his beloved wife and for Jesus seemed to fill the room. He smiles infectiously, laughs easily, and is genuinely humble. He says, John Wooden lived a good and beautiful life. James is calling his beloved brothers and sisters and us to live the good and beautiful life offered by the gracious, good, and beautiful God he had met in the person of his brother. So we recall that in uh, chapter 1, it's like an overture of the whole letter. He introduces us to the themes that he intends to address. So we know these folks are experiencing all kinds of tests and trials and temptations, and they don't seem to be handling them very maturely with godly wisdom. They're expressing a lot of envy, anger, complaints. Ostensibly, they're even acting out in violent ways towards some, if not in their own community, then towards the rich or oppressing them. At the end of the chapter James gives them three tests for true religion. Number one, <coughs> bridling the tongue. Number two, caring for the needy, orphans and widows, and three, keeping themselves unstained by the world. In the first part of chapter 3, which we covered last week, he definitely takes them to task regarding their speech. It seems to me that he first brings it up obliquely in the first half of chapter 2 when he is addressing their partiality, what might also be bringing attention to their worldliness. But gently, he's doing it gently there. The second half of chapter 2, he elucidates the distinction between true faith and false or dead faith, which is test number 2 which is getting at the genuine care offered to those in need. So in our passage today, he takes his rebuke against worldliness up several notches. And also in this passage, chapter 4, verses 6 to 10, uh, many commentators consider this to be the heart of the letter, where James again, but in greater detail this time, speaks of the gospel of the kingdom. So with that, let me read our passage, and you won't have to do it. In your groups who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts do not boast and be false to the truth this is not the wisdom that comes down from above but is earthly unspiritual and demonic for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist there will be disorder and every vile practice But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have. Because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is friendship, is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say? He earns, yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So he starts this section with this question, who is wise an understanding among you. He's probably going back perhaps to those who are thinking of becoming teachers or leaders. That could be all of us at, at any point. Is it, is it those who are successful? Those who have attained fame? Those who are better at speaking than many others? James's answer, no. It's the one who humbly manifests his or her wisdom in good deeds It's not just about talking the talk, but walking the walk. True wisdom is associated with righteous living. Look back to chapter 1, verse 5. Wisdom from God helps us endure trials with steadfastness and so attain the crown of life. The Greco-Roman concepts of wisdom that James is talking about, that's their culture they're swimming in, is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Uh, Dan McCartney in his commentary says that Sophia, the Greek word for why wisdom, originally meant skill or craft, but came to signify cunning, craftiness, and the ability to manipulate events and people for one's own ends. I learned from Scott McKnight that humility was not a virtue highly valued in the Greco-Roman world. And the book of Enoch, a second temple piece of literature, uh, tells of these rebellious spiritual beings that gave humans knowledge they weren't supposed to have. And then, of course, we know that Jesus battled Dima, so there's this evil spiritual realm that is also the source of a lot of this worldliness, this ungodliness. One of the uh, articles that I that I looked at, said it's more like doggy dog self-centered, self-pleasing, indulgent, and indifferent to others. Godly wisdom, on the other hand, when it's embodied, looks like this, pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Again, I'm using Dr. McCartney's uh, commentary here. Pure, the Greek word agnos means something like holy or innocent, the opposite of every vile practice from the preceding verse. Peaceable, gentle, open to reason. These Greek words begin with epsilon and have to do with a wise person's disposition. Full of mercy and good fruits both have to do with a wise person's actions. And, sorry, messed up my order here. And then impartial which is what James is calling them to do in chapter two, and sincere, both begin with the prefix alpha, which in English is un, meaning not, and describe the enduring constancy of the wise person. Uh, Verse 18, last in this section, could be rendered something like this. It's kind of a challenging verse. Peacemakers who sow seeds of peace and reap, peacemakers, who sow seeds are let's see who so yes who sow seeds of peace reap a harvest of righteousness in other words a community led by and characterized by these peacemakers are, is orderly peaceful unified and harmonious so in section the next section of chapter 4 verse five verses James is calling them out about their wretched behavior which is the product of the ungodly desires and passions in their hearts. In verse 4, the Greek actually says, You adulteresses. Here, James is sounding like the Old Testament prophets who spoke of God as Israel's husband and she as his wife. As a people, they were called whores and adulteresses for worshiping the so-called gods of the Canaanites. God requires complete trust and loyalty. Look at the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God. And again in Exodus 34, 14, right after God had walked by Moses and put his hand over him to protect him, proclaiming his name. Yahweh then recommitted himself to the Israelites. This was after the golden calf thing. And commanded them to tear down all the altars and sacred pillars of the Canaanites. Then verse 14, he says, For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. You cannot have one foot on the dock and one foot in the boat. You cannot have one foot in the kingdom of this world and, in the, and the other in the kingdom of God. It does not work that way. 1 John 5.19 tells us the world is under the power of the evil one. And verse 5 is one of the most challenging verses in James to translate. It's probably best rendered as the ESV has it in a few other translations. Scholars still can't say for sure if the Spirit is the breath of life given to us at creation or the Holy Spirit given to us at conversion. But if we interpret 5b as depicting the jealousy that God has for us, then according to Douglas Moo in his commentary, verse 6b, which is, but he gives more grace, emphasizes that, I'm quoting Moo now, God's grace is completely adequate to meet the requirements imposed on us by that jealousy. Our God is a consuming fire, and his demands on us may seem terrifying, but our God is also merciful, gracious, all-loving, and willingly supplies all that we need to meet his all-encompassing demands. There's our hope. Before moving on, let's look more closely at worldliness. What does worldliness mean? One article I found said the essence of worldliness is an acceptance of the presuppositions of the world. David Wells, in his book, Losing Our Virtue, described uh, worldliness as that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective which displaces God and his truth from the world and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. So it's not the earth, but a value system that is at enmity with God, prideful, not humble and submissive, not trusting the Creator. What does worldliness look like? Immaturity. Remember our Hebrew study? Chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6, you ought to be teachers, but you still need to be taught elementary things. You should be eating solid food, but you're still drinking milk. Press on to maturity. Paul says something very similar to the Corinthian church. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. This is 1 Corinthians uh, 3. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food. For you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving, behaving only in a human way? It is Worldliness is the opposite of godliness. In 2 Timothy 3, 1-7, Paul paints for us a vivid picture of ungodly people who have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In the ESV study Bible, the note there says that godliness means genuine piety, including holiness, reverence, faith, love, and devotion to God. So the people referenced in 2 Timothy 3 claim to know God, but their lives are devoid of the work of the Holy Spirit, which would have resulted in holiness, perseverance, and effectiveness in advancing God's kingdom. Worldliness is also characterized by worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is what we experience when we see our sin the way God sees it, and we repent. We change our thinking about it and put our trust in Jesus, whose blood washes away that sin Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, proceeds from a self-love and arises from some loss or disappointment, but when the circumstances change, the sorrow disappears. Just this morning, I was reading uh, in in Exodus, Pharaoh, I can't remember what the number of the plague is, but the plague of hail. It, It was so horrible that Pharaoh summoned Moses, I've sinned, stop it. And as soon as it stopped, he relented. It's hostile to God, worldliness. is hostile to God. Again, we can only be in one camp, one kingdom. If we choose the world, we are choosing God's enemy. If we choose God's kingdom, we are to battle against God's enemies. We're not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed. We can do that by maturing into Christ's likeness by the power of the Spirit at work in us, by praying for wisdom, by praying for discernment, between the world's wisdom and godly wisdom, God's wisdom, by study of the word, by fellowshipping with brothers and sisters who encourage us to choose the path of life by bridling our tongues, by caring for the needy, by keeping ourselves unstained by the world. In the next section, James is breaking into his flow with a plea for his readers to humble themselves and submit to God to repent, to change their thinking, and to trust that God is for them and will meet their needs and will exalt them in his timing. He uses images of repentance from the Old Testament, especially from the Psalms and the prophets. So here I want to take a deeper dive into humility, which for quite some time now in the church has been a neglected virtue. Uh, in chapter 3, 13, uh, Dan McCartney translated this verse, By his good conduct, let him show his works in humble wisdom. So I don't know if it's the same word, but there's humble in our passage. And then God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is the quote from Proverbs 3:34: uh, Submit, which is a humble posture. And then humble yourselves before the Lord, he will, and he will exalt you. Andrew Murray, in his book, Humility, describes it this way. Humility is simply the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make way for God to be all. When the creature realizes that this is true goodness and consents to be the vessel in which the life and glory of God are to work and exhibit themselves He sees that humility is simply acknowledging the truth of his position as the creature and yielding to God his rightful place. Jesus is our ultimate example. Philippians 2, 5 to 11 is our confession of faith for Lent. So we won't read it now, but there you you have it on your paper. The Pharisee versus the tax collector from Luke 18 Uh, is a very commonly used Lenten passage in um, liturgical churches. And you know that parable. The Pharisee is boasting about himself in his prayer to God. And the tax collector stands at the back of the room, can't even lift his head to pray. He beats his breast. God, oh, sorry, microphone. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man walked away. Justified, anyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And again, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is at his lowest point, even then says, Not my will, but yours be done. A humble posture of submission before his Father. Uh, I qu- quoted for you several more. Uh, Sentences, passages from Matthew, not Matthew Henry, Andrew Murray. I don't know why I put Matthew Henry there. Um, that that meant, to, meant something to me. Uh, we're to present ourselves as empty vessels. Humility is the first duty of the creature. A loss of humility is the root of every sin and evil. Without humility, there is no faith, love, joy, or strength demonstrated in our lives humility is not a thing that will come of itself it must be made the object of special desire prayer faith and practice so my takeaways from this very deep profound difficult passage it takes a long time a whole lifetime to become a faithful friend of God. I'm reading Richard Foster's new book, Learning Humility, in a reading group. And I loved this passage that I had read uh, last week. Uh, he's quoting from a manuscript given to him by a Paula Houston titled The Hermits of Big Sur. So these are, these are monastic uh, folks. She writes, you do not become a contemplative overnight. Now, contemplatives are not just Monks. A contemplative is anyone, it could be a housewife, it could be a teacher, it could be an engineer, anyone who spends time with God, who learns to just be with him and sit on his lap like a weaned child. So you do not become a contemplative overnight, she writes. In fact, to become holy and full of wisdom in this way requires years of slow, painful, unselfing Desires must be dealt with. Passions must be tamed. The mind must be trained. Humility must become second nature, a way of life. The Christian monastic tradition calls the outcome of this unselfing process puritas cordis, or purity of heart. Number two, I see better now how love, joy, and peace go together. collecting these thoughts from John Mark Comer's sermons on joy I listened to this past week. A common triad, especially in the New Testament, because they work synchronistically. James asks his brothers, beloved brothers and sisters, to look through their trials with joy, through the darkness and death, to the light and life waiting at the end. James 1, 2. Joyful people are those whose minds are focused on God, who spend time in the presence of the joyful triune community. As we train our minds to be aware of God's presence everywhere and at all times, his love begins to pervade us and spill out onto our neighbors. We will thus fulfill the royal law by loving our neighbors as ourselves. James 2, 8 When we in our community are characterized by joy and love, we experience the peace that Jesus had and left with us, peace with God, the peace of God. This peaceableness produces a harvest of righteousness, James 3, 18. It looks like doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God, Micah 6, 8. It looks like godly wisdom embodied. Three, a humble life guided by God's wisdom and characterized by joy, love, and peace is a beautiful life. Let me tell you the end of Ben's story, and I'm probably going to cry because I cry at Hallmark commercials and Folgers commercials. (laughs) (laughs) Not, Not otherwise. Jim continued to meet with John through the rest of that summer, and they started reading the Gospels together. And at one point, Jim just told Ben, look, Ben, the best life is that of following Jesus. And Ben said, well jesus is is brilliant, but it, it's too it's too late for me i'm I'm seventy five and I've lived a horrible life." Um, and uh, he said, "I'm beyond re- redemption." But Jim was happy to tell him that no one is beyond redemption. It doesn't matter how old you are, that redemption is God's favorite activity." And so by the end of the summer, Ben came to Jim before he left and gave him this present of this rare book that Jim loved and he told them that he had given his life to Jesus and he presented him also with a letter that he had written to his daughter asking for her forgiveness and the rest of the time they had together Jim got to witness the change that was beginning to happen in Ben's life. 13 years later Jim received a letter from Ben's daughter. He had died at 88, and she said he lived his life for the glory of God, and he died a radiant death. Lent is the perfect season to examine ourselves, to repent of sins, to change our thinking, and to believe or trust the good and beautiful god whose desire it is for us to be his friends alexander Schmemann, in his book on great lent says that his general impression of lent or a general impression of lent is bright sadness the sadness of my exile of the waste i have made of my life the brightness of God's presence and forgiveness, the joy of the recovered desire of God, the peace of the recovered home. Such is the climate of Lenten worship. Such is its first and general impact on my soul. Let's pray. Our dearest Father and our beautiful and good God, thank you. That your heart is full of mercy toward all that you have made including us your sinful rebellious children thank you for offering us such great mercy through our precious lord jesus whose trials and sufferings we especially look upon reflect upon in this lenten season may we indeed use these few weeks to reflect on our lives. None of us are perfect, and you know that, but you want us to go on to maturity. and So we ask you by the power of the Holy Spirit whom you've sent to us to enable us to do what you've called us to do. Transform us into the image of your dear Son. Bless these ladies as they meet now in their small groups. May it be a fruitful time for their edification. May their conversation edify one another and glorify you through the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.